Welcome to the end of our initial series on the ecosystem of God's kingdom. But as you will find out as we go through this talk together, the landing place of a whole new and exciting exploration in 2024. So I'm going to be explaining, I think, where we are now in our cultural moment. I'm going to be recapping the where we've got to on this teaching series this term, the ecosystem of God's kingdom and setting us up for 2024. So what was fascinating in the 90s and noughties in the West was it felt like we'd hit that secular humanist utopia. The Cold War had collapsed with the falling of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and America had risen as the superpower of the 20th century um, going into the noughties. A Japanese-American academic, Francis Fukuyama, wrote a book, The End of History and the Last Man. So we've gone through all these phases in history, including the Christian phase, and now we've come out and we literally have ended history. If the whole world could adopt liberal democracies and free multi-party democratic elections, then this sort of humanist utopia would spread over the whole world. And it was an extraordinary period. We could go to our local city virtually and there would be an airport and we could fly somewhere in the world, relatively cheaply from the West, that is, in ways that would have been unthinkable, not just two or three generations previously, but two or three decades previously. And in that season, Christianity, as I will I'll talk about later when I talk about Charles Taylor's extraordinary book, A Secular Age, was sort of relegated to that pre-enlightenment superstitious phase that we went through, that we finally were delivered from through a number of different factors in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. So finally, by the end of the 20th century, we've put all our immaturity behind us and we are now mature humans able to take the whole world onto this this journey of a kind of utopian freedom. And then some things started to happen at the end of the noughties, which we're still recovering from and, and left some earthquake tremors that seem to increase in magnitude and fallout. Firstly, there was a financial crisis in 2008 and the, the ideal of, of, of the free market economy alone didn't seem to be able to deliver this, this utopia for very long that we were all experiencing. We still are living in the ramifications of that and cannot overestimate the implications of that crisis back in 2008. And at the same time, we launched the first smartphones, 2007-8, Twitter, as it was formerly known. It's like our so print social media, X formerly known as Twitter. Twitter was launched in those, those years and Facebook. So the world collapsed in some ways financially. There were creaks in the system, but also it changed dramatically in how we relate to each other. In the next eight years... Uh, there, were, there was such sort of transition in so many areas that by 2016, 
there were some significant votes in the in the West which exposed the beginnings of ideological polarization, which by 2020, when COVID hit, was uh, really brought to the surface. Levels of injustice underneath this sort of utopian sheen were exposed in how people experienced the pandemic so differently within very, very close geographical proximity to each other within the West. COVID itself proved a challenge for the West because to, uh, the, the victory really at the end of the 20th century was we have conquered nature. We build our cities and we can live and we are safe against the chaotic forces of nature. And, and there is tremendous truth in that. The, the level of comfort and ease with which we can now live within um, areas of natural disasters and the, the, the level of medical intervention we can now experience is quite extraordinary. And to a certain extent, there was definitely truth in that idea that we'd conquered nature. But when the pandemic hit, there was a sort of a renewed sense that I think many of us have never really experienced of our vulnerability and fragility in the face of raw nature. And so we had that sort of existential crisis of are we as sovereign and powerful and all-conquering as we thought, as well as the political crisis and the social crisis. Meanwhile, during... This is me being very Western-centric as I'm speaking because that's our my experience and our story. Meanwhile, at the same time, there's the rise of China in, in power and in influence in technology and in finance. And that really started to shake this idea that America and anyone who was in an alliance with America was, was kind of the sole leader of this new world order post-Cold War. And then finally in 2022 something happened that, that felt almost unbelievable and impossible. And although proxy wars had been going on and, and in some ways it was nothing new under the sun, it felt new when Russia invaded Ukraine, when there was a war in, in Europe, in, in the borders of the West, that rocked people to the core. So we come to now, we come to 2023, and the West is chastised, chastened, humbled, more open, more fragile, more aware of our limitations, more aware of our needs, more vulnerable. And as such, we can say it was the, the best of times in the 90s and noughties, but in some ways, in terms of the arrogant and the hubris it, it, it produced, it, it was the worst of times. And maybe the, the humbling and the openness that's coming now is, is actually making the best of times out of the worst of times we are now in. Many people are facing, as a result of all these global factors, um, a cost of living crisis, making day-to-day -day living just harder than it's ever been as we face winter. And there's a sense that people are starting to rethink where what we feel is real about the world, what we feel is, is true about what it actually is to be human, we have the, the rise of AI, which is forcing that question like never before. What is distinct about us? What future is for us? Is there anything more than our 
insignificant moment in in the, the big history of the earth and the universe. And I'm just seeing whispers and intimations of, of dawn, if you like, a dawn of a new age of faith in Jesus. I'm just beginning to read things, hear things, see things where where people are thinking more about the specific person of Jesus, the claims of, of the Christian faith, the idea that God is real and he loves humanity and he's made a way for humanity. These are these are just beginning to come to the surface for the first time in decades in our public conversations. And I'm going to start with a couple of very different people who are drawn to the Christian faith to help us have examples in our mind and heart as to what I'm saying. The extraordinary shaking that's happened in the world in the last 20 years in the West is is shaking the things that can be shaken in order that God's kingdom, which we'll be looking at and have been looking at, which can never be shaken, will remain. So I'm going to start with an article by a leading thinker, Ian Hersey Alley, extraordinary woman who in some ways exemplifies the complexity of our current cultural moment. She actually fled her childhood home and upbringing on the grounds of a forced marriage and resettled in the West. She denounced her Islamic background and Islamism, notably has spoken out publicly against forced marriage, honour killing, child marriage and FGM. She renounced the, the religion of her childhood and she became a poster child for the new atheists, the one horse woman accompanying the famous horse four horsemen of the non-apocalypse, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett. And yet fascinatingly, this November the 11th, 2023, she posted a, a fascinating article which is open to anyone to to find online why I am now a Christian. Yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realisation that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? Bertrand Russell and other activist atheists believe that with the rejection of God, we would enter an age of reason and intelligent humanism. But, but the God hole, the void left by the retreat of the church, has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma. The line often attributed to G.K. Chesterton has turned into a prophecy. And I really want us to pay attention to this. I think this is a really sharp insight into where we are at now in terms of what people actually believe when they're looking online with with our fictional or imaginative life. This is uh, given to G.K. Chesterton, who was a, a Catholic spiritual writer about 100 years ago. So if it was him, it's extraordinarily prophetic and pertinent. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in everything. I'm going to say that one more time. 
because I think that captures exactly where we're at. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in everything. She continues, that is why I no longer consider myself a Muslim apostate, but a lapsed atheist. Of course, I still have a great deal to learn about Christianity. I discover a little more at church each Sunday, but I've recognised in my own long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief had to offer. And then completely another kind of person. If you go to the next slide, this guy called Nick Cave, he's like the head of the birthday party. He um, contributed to Shane McGowan's funeral, who was part of a, a group called the Pogues. And he has been talking a lot recently about his very complex relationship um, with, with faith and Christian belief. But he's, what I love about him, he's just very open about the I'm gonna I'm gonna come to this more in a minute the disingenuous position of saying we're materialists when none of us live like it. None of us actually live like we're chemical accidents kept alive by a dying star. War matters to us because it's wrong. Injustice matters to us because it's wrong. We want everyone, I'm talking about all people here, I'm not talking about Christians, everyone wants people to flourish because there's something in us that's more than just a chemical accident. We're made for more than materialism. And he has the honesty to just say that. He doesn't know where he's at. He does, he goes to church, he has this kind of complex relationship with faith. He does have doubt, but he's honest enough to just kind of say the reality of what it is to be human. Well, I'm certainly sceptical of my beliefs, put it that way. I like going to church because church seems to be an ordered place that allows me not to believe as much as it allows me to believe. I have both of these things going on inside of me. I have doubt about things. And then this this just so sharp. But it feels disingenuous to reject these yearnings and whispered intimations and softly spoken feelings about things that I don't know what to do with, but they are religious in nature. There's just something in us when we look at a sunset and if someone says that's just because of the coloured spectrum and the angle that Earth is to the sun at this point, it's just like, shut up. There's poetry in the world. The world is poetic. It's not just material. It's a completely beautiful interrelationship between both. There is poetry in science, and there is science in poetry. And the way we insist on still using language like the sunrise and the sunset because we're expressing something beyond materialism in those moments, exactly the same when you can't reduce falling in love to a dopamine hit that lasts for two years. You really can't. We know we can't. You can't reduce wanting your children to survive because you believe you have this driven evolutionary urge to have the survival of the species. Who cares about the survival of the species? You just would lay down your life for your kids. There's something deeper and more covenantal and poetic going on there. So Charles Taylor writes this book, which is really hard. 
really hard to read. And actually, I was talking to Bill about it. And Bill, there is a version that's like Charles Taylor for Dummies, which people recommend as well. So if you don't want to read the book, there is another guy, scholar, who's done a lot of work on making this accessible. But he basically asks this question and takes about 900 pages of really small words, which I have read, to answer it. He asks a simple question, why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in 1500 in the West? And it's virtually impossible to believe in God in the West in 2000. And he wrote this in 2007-8 at that height of, we've done it, guys. We've, we've surfed the wave of all religious beliefs. We've put them into the medieval realm of superstitions. And now we are, as humans, kind of taking, taking the territory. And he just systematically it, uh, kind of calls out each area that humans have confidence, how we slowly moved away from the sort of superstitious medievalism into our kind of humanist utopia, but ends up with this fascinating kind of analysis, which is we still live with a cognitive dissonance between we know this is true, we can just solve everything through medicine and technology. We're, we know we're only humans. There's nothing else in the universe. There's no spiritual realm. That was relegated to the time before the Enlightenment when we were stupid and ignorant and naive. And now we've grown up. We've put our immaturity behind us. And we are the supreme virtue in the known universe. And yet none of us, as I keep saying, actually live as if that's true. Our imaginative life, our fictional life, there's never been so much science fiction, ironically, in novels and media. Never been so much interest in the unseen or the magic realm in novels and media since we supposedly left all that superstition behind us. And I just do want to honour the process of the last few hundred years in the West. We no longer, I've talked about this before, I loved his illustration. When our cow gets cursed, we no longer blame the wild woman in the village. We just go to a vet and get a diagnosis and it gets better on medication. I love that. I'm all about that. And yet I believe as well in the reality of the spiritual realm. I believe in the reality of God that we're made as his image bearers. We have authority to steward and we are given authority Delegated fully to rule, which means we can destroy to. We really matter. We're not insignificant. We're highly significant. What we believe about ourselves makes or breaks this world. So we need to start believing the reality that we're image bearers. What we do matters. That people may or may not flourish under our care. That there is an unseen realm as well that is populated by lies, by demonic beings that are out to rob can destroy humanity that these things are very real we don't understand them conceptually because in our universities we have no ideological place for training in that we don't understand how to talk about it so the closest I get to is looking at places where they are marked systemically by poverty and injustice and racism that to me is the unseen realm manifesting in how people treat each other and there are other places that just seem to be marked by just life's easier or it's more peaceful or it's more this or it's more that. That is the interrelationship between the seen and the unseen realm manifested in populations that we can actually study in subjects like sociology or um, in the history like anthropology. We really, really care about what's happening in Israel and Gaza. I'm talking about the whole West cares, both sides. Because we're image bearers, not because we're materialists. 
we wouldn't care as much if we were like, well, who cares? Like, she absolutely nails it. She said, basically, atheism cannot deliver the issue of purpose. And we know instinctively we have purpose. Our children have purpose. Other people have purpose. And their children have purpose. We just know that. And Jesus laughs, actually. He says, he just, he says, I'm so full of joy because the wise and intelligent people can't see what little kids can just see. It's like the emperor's new clothes. The Western system is naked and is exposed. And it's like little kids going, obviously there's a God. Obviously we need to know we're loved. Obviously all our dysfunctions come out of not knowing we're loved. Like it's pretty obvious, isn't it? But there's a humility required to say yes to that. There's a humility required. It's not an elitist faith. It's a faith that says we all get to humble ourselves before the cradle and the cross. There's no other route in but the door of humility. And that's why little children can get in faster than us intellectual people. Political volatility, the rise of a strong man, corruption in religious institutions, less resources, a concern for justice for those who are oppressed, a movement away from lofty ideals to survival through self-protecting strategies, the rise of nationalism. Do you recognise any of those things happening? Well, what was quite extraordinary, I'm going to read them again, is they were happening 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. Political volatility, the rise of the strong man, corruption in religious institutions, less resources, a concern for justice for those who are oppressed, a movement away from lofty ideals to being about survival through self-protecting strategies, the rise of nationalism. That was all there in first century Greco-Roman, particularly the area of Palestine. It, it is very different in the world now to them. And there are also incredible similarities. So what is an ecosystem? We've been looking at the ecosystem of God's kingdom and I kind of want to land the plane in order to take off uh, um, 2024. For according to the National Geographic Society, an ecosystem is a geographic area where plants, animals and other organisms, as well as weather and landscape, work together to form a bubble of life. So it's a whole way of life that is, is, it, it works. There's flourishing. There's, um, yeah, just, just everything is completely interrelated in, in a, in a sensitively highly tuned way so that everything flourishes. So we use this word for the series, this term, the ecosystem of God's kingdom, carefully with that idea in mind. It's a metaphor for how we can live in this highly tuned way under God's good governance in such a way that everything flourishes like a really healthy biological ecosystem. So I'm going to do a quick recap of some of the things we've, we've looked at this term. We looked at uh, the vision of, of God's kingdom because what, what we've done in the teaching series actually is like looked at the, the kingdom like a diamond. We've had loads of different ways of looking at it. We've had Bill talking systematically through the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible build up what they would have understood to be kingdom by the time we get to the first century. So if you want a three in a row standalone, I'd really recommend Bill draw it on the bit, the sort of the biblical context of that. We've also looked at P2, 
people like we've got um, Hushang who lives with us and Rose who expressed in different aspects of what it is to um, be in God's kingdom for Hushang encountered Jesus in Iran and Rose is called by God um, in in partnership with others in her particular place of work. If you would like to hear her in the interview with her, please request it um, privately through email. And then we looked at things like how you access the kingdom. One of my pet, pet repeated phrases all the time is you access the kingdom through a change of mindset about what's real. Repentance, metanoia. That, that, I literally will probably say that. People probably get bored. They're like, oh, Alice is here. She's going to talk about repentance again. That's what she does. Because I honestly think the kingdom of God's here. Like, it's real. The world is, is infused with the reality of God. And it's our metanoia, our mindset, our repentance that, that leads us into accessing it. It's here. It's right here. And so we talked about that and what actually repentance is. It's, it's not living out the lies that God doesn't exist. He isn't good out for ourselves. We're self-protecting and we turn and we walk in the opposite spirit. We're loved. He provides everything. So we never need to operate out of panic. He's good, he's kind, and we get to image bear him and be good and kind and generous like he is. It all begins with what we actually believe is real. And then we we also looked at, um, Joseph brought a beautiful word on, on the kind of heart, I guess, of the kingdom is its family. And that's the overarching metaphor in the New Testament for what it is to be a follower of Jesus more than any other metaphor there are great metaphors which I think still resonate today, like around being an athlete. For not as many of us would understand these, but I think they're really good for those who are in these industries, um, like being a, a soldier or like being in the um, a farmer. I think they're they're helpful metaphors as well. But the overarching one I think we can all relate to is the overarching one in the New Testament, is that the heart of what it is to follow Jesus is you were included into a family where God is the Father and we're all his children. And he loves it not only when we honour his ways and live in a way that represents him well as, as a bearer of the family name, but actually it's the way we treat each other that that really brings joy to his heart. And uh, as a parent, I'm so happy. My happiness and unhappiness is often riding on how well my children relate to each other. It's so finely attuned to that. When they get on with each other, I feel happy. And when they don't, I feel unhappy. And actually, all of them are fine with me. It's really fascinating. And that is a really good reflection of the radical individualism, the splintered West. We have our lovely relationship with God, don't we? But we don't really know necessarily how to deeply love one another well. And I think that's what he wants to heal and restore and establish, and I think Joseph couldn't have been, couldn't have been a better person, Joseph and Chloe, to bring that, um, message. They have such a heart and a life that, that has, bring, brings family. They, um, started and steward the Ukraine hub here, and he works as well with people seeking refuge as his, as his everyday job. So he understands about family. So do listen to that, and if you, if you want to have any more kind of connections about how we can be, like family and reach out more maybe to the other or the marginalized then he would be great to talk to about that as well so
So I think um, the image though we've used the whole time is an image on Chris and my heart, an image on, it's just the way the world is, the more I've thought about it, is, is everything starts small and then grows big. Human life starts very, very small, microscopically small, and grows big. And so does the kingdom. Jesus uses this parable, and that's the, our primary image. It's been the image of a mustard tree. That small idea, that small dream, that small kingdom vision goes to the ground. It dies. It looks hopeless. You can't see anything above the surface. Two, three hundred years under Roman oppression. <laughs> crucified. guy. There were loads of them. They all got executed under Roman law. Anyone who did anything in the Roman Empire had a very, very strict procedure for punishing people publicly so no one would rise up against Rome. Mainly, but this is disputed, but people think it was mainly built on slaves, women and children because they were disempowered in the first, second, third centuries and they were empowered within these communities meeting in people's houses called the church. And suddenly, there is such a grassroots movement. This is the only religion in history. It's the only philosophy. It's the only movement that has ever been genuinely, historically, grassroots up. There was such a movement of conversion to the person and the reality of Jesus that actually the the political system, for better or worse, and we can discuss that, but it happened in history, almost had to say, okay, we're Christian. Because a significant proportion of the entire Roman Empire turned to Christ. That is a mustard seed growing into a tree, which is still bringing covering in the world today. It's bringing covering in a number of ways. It's bringing covering in the assumption that children should be going to school, not going to war. That is a Christian assumption. The assumption is you, we, we, we should give care to anyone if they're in war or in need, independent of where they come from. That is a Christian assumption. That comes from Jesus' teachings. You love your enemies. You don't just look after your own. So the assumption now with things like the Red Cross, with UN humanitarian movements, all these assumptions are Christian. That is a mustard seed that is just growing to be a tree that covers the whole earth, because in the end it's true and it's real. This is a real reading of the world. This is the reality of who we are as humans. God is real, he is love, he made us in his image, and he's inaugurating new creation. So we also have a passion here. We're kind of, there's a distinction here in, in in, in absolutely not in theology or some parts of our practice or anything like that. But we have a, little, a distinction here at Hope that we believe we're here to release people to connect with their calling. We talked about this in our leaders, Hope leaders, boat and life group leaders meals last Wednesday and the Wednesday before. So what we're not trying to do is gather people to support our vision. That can happen and does happen and that's absolutely fine. I actually don't believe that's the calling on Chris and I and on us. I believe we're here to create a culture of faith where everyone connects with their calling. Why they're here on earth 
we get to be a community that champions and supports one another to do it. That's going to be the focus of the AGM. I have never been so excited by an AGM in my entire life. In February, we're going to be spotlighting individuals in this church who are innovating or pioneering in some way. And just, I'll be asking you guys, so you've heard it here, why, whatever, why, whatever, why, whatever the thing is. Because we are supporting, we want to be a place of incubation for these mustard seeds to support vulnerable saplings growing up into mustard trees, which provide creative solutions to some of the problems we're facing. The list is extraordinary. There is a disproportionate amount of innovators and creators in this church. I almost have to rein it in and be quite strict with who we would want to just, we would want to share their why. And, and so as we come, we kept, we're coming to the end of this series, Bill, Chris and I had like the quickest meeting ever going, well, what's God, with, with the elders and then together, what is God wanting to do? Because what happens with the teaching is it's, it's kind of in alignment with where we feel God's going with the church. So it's always in the context of a bigger movement towards something and then all the different aspects of the church work towards that. And we literally, within a few minutes, sat down together and we were like, we have only scraped the surface of God's kingdom, the ecosystem of God's kingdom. We don't even, we feel we've just beginning to get our heads around that way of life, that existence, that air we breathe. So what we're actually going to do is continue for a few months focusing specifically on, can I have the, the next slide please? The king. It's the king. The birth of the king looking at today. But any organization, any community, any group really is a representation of the, of the leader or the leadership infused amongst the community. And the why the kingdom of God is so sweet and so pure and so beautiful and so faith-filled and so uncorrupt and immortal and everlasting, substantial, real, true, holy, it's because the king is like that. That is the king. The king is humility. The king is faith. The king is patience. The king, I'm just going to say his name in English, but for those of you whose first language isn't English, it might be Esau or Yeshua. Jesus is compassion. He is boldness. He is virtue. He is courage. He is stewardship. He is hope. He is purity. He is wholeheartedness. We don't follow a system or principles of virtues like everyone else does. We follow a person who is virtuous, who is virtue. And so we're going to be digging into who this king is that, that, that establishes such an extraordinary kingdom that we all get to be a part of. And as we're a part of, rubs off on us. So we become people who are humility. We are become people who are faith, who are patience, who are compassion, who are boldness, who are courage, who are love. All those things that is him, is us. They're not adjectives, they're nouns. We embody them. So I'm going to look at a passage. Matthew clearly represents Jesus as the king. He clearly says he fulfills the messianic profile of the Hebrew Bible 
That is very small. That's me trying to get it all on a few slides. You can read that another time. It's Matthew 2. And I just want to draw attention to there are two kinds of kings. It's such a pretty, brutal passage. It's the passage that doesn't make it ever into the nativity scenes. Although it did in that comedy nativity by the like the two schools, the primary school, and then then and then he's like, I'm going to do the killing of the, the innocents by Herod. I'm like, okay, right. There are two kings. There's the, there's the king, the magi, these community of very wealthy. Um, spiritual, intellectual elite from Babylon, from the East, which is beautiful, a beautiful inclusion moment then. Historically, they were the oppressors in the Hebrew Bible, and they become one of the first to kneel at the king. No one is above and beyond the grace and mercy of God. In fact, those are the people he calls the first. Beautiful healing moment there. And then you have another king called Herod, who is cl- classic first century or classic ancient world king. And you still get, get this tragically played out still today. So paranoid, so fearful, so despotic that will kill members of his own family and so on to retain the throne. And you have two kinds of kings. So there's this birth of a baby. Literally, Jesus comes as a baby. I, I, I find the incarnation unfathomably mysterious to get my head around that the God of the universe comes as a baby but that baby carries so much authority that from the moment that baby is born there is just a split between two kinds of human responses it's just this stark response you either worship you lay down all your riches all your intellectualism all your cares all the the things you think are great about your life the magi the kings from the east just laid it all down went right out of their way spent loads of money and time to worship to just reorientate everything so they could just worship or you have the other response which is i am so angry and jealous and threatened that I will kill this baby, that I I will do anything to kill a baby. You always know something else is going on when people are threatened by babies and the elderly. And really I want to come into land as we, we begin to meditate on this person, the king that we're going to be doing for months into 2024, meditate on the person of Jesus whose kingdom is being established and whose kingdom there will be no end, will be marked by peace and joy and righteousness. What is our response to the king? Because there isn't a neutral response. There isn't, oh, I hedge my bets. I might keep some of my wealth, some of my inheritance, some of my intellectualism, some of my strength, some of my popularity. I'm just going to keep it. It all goes. It all gets laid down. It all gets left a long way behind when we find our identity and healing at the cradle. Or we are just like, I hate this person, Jesus, and I hate everything to do with him. I hate everyone who follows them, and I want to kill them. 
And in fact, that's what Jesus calls out of the religious elite. He said they're supposed to be Torah abiding, the Pharisees. But they want to kill him and he calls out that spirit of murder. He's like, you say you don't murder, but you want to murder me. He calls out their hypocrisy. So I personally think we can say, we're not like Herod. (laughs) We'll never kill anyone. I tell you what I struggle with all the time. Jealousy, comparison, competitiveness. From the moment I could think for myself, I was thinking, how can I be seen in the world? Ah, I've got to be better in this area than these people and in this way and in this quantity. That is the spirit of Herod in me that I need to repent of, break off my life, leave far behind back in Babylon and come to Jesus now and just say, I worship you in that you have full and complete worth. It is you that has worth. I worship you and I find all my worth in you. So I want us to meditate on that over the next few weeks. What's our response? What's our deep, our real response to the person of Jesus? And I also want us to know that I think culturally we're in a thin place. That we can be bold in our conversations with people who may know God's love, who may not over Christmas. I think it's it's a space where there's more freedom to, to just tell our story. Just tell why we follow Jesus, who we think he is. Because I think things are being shaken so much culturally that the kingdom of God, which can never be shaken, is remaining. And so it's the worst of times, but for that reason, we can say it's the best of times. I'm going to pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you... You are not the strong man who uses your strength to coerce. But you are authority personified. And you lay down your life in sacrificial love for humanity. You never have a concern about scarcity of resources. You provide abundantly for all our and all the earth's needs. You are so deeply concerned for justice that you would be executed for it to be established. Justice and righteousness are the foundations of your throne. That you never needed to resort to survival or self-protecting strategies. You remain fully immense, fully through immense suffering, death and into resurrection, fully confident in God's goodness and love and capacity to heal, restore and renew all things, including this very heaven and earth. And you are the king of the kingdom that knows no geographical, ethnic or racial boundaries. Of the increase of your kingdom, there will be no end. All other ones are false and illusions and will pass away. And the only passport we need to access is faith. I pray, firstly, for windows to talk about you in a way that's sincere, that's humble, that's open, that's open about our own stuff. And shows that you really do bring healing. 
And I pray also that you take us deeper into that mystery of, of what it actually means to follow you. Take us out of, of the spirit of Herod and in, into the spirit of humility that, that marked the Magi and enabled them to become clean. Amen.